Hola. So, so as, as is quite obvious, we're starting the day relatively late. I'm sure probably all of you have already had some time for practice. I'm a morning person myself, so I like to start early, get to bed early. So today and then for the rest of our retreat, I'm going to simply assume that you've already done your basic preliminaries, everything you like to do kind of to launch the day. Um, refuge, bodhicitta, maybe your sadhanas, preliminary practices, that those are done. Because our time together here collectively is really quite short. So I'm going to assume that. That is true for me. And then when we gather here, we're just going to go straight into the main practice. Okay? So please find a comfortable position, sitting or supine as you wish. And we'll I'll now offer a practice. It traces back to, to um, Asanga. And it's going to be our baseline for the entire retreat. So as any of you will recall, in terms of bodhicitta, there is the aspiring bodhicitta and the engaged bodhicitta. Engaged bodhicitta is when you are actually immersing yourself in a certain practice with the motivation of bodhicitta. So with such engaged bodhicitta, in a spirit of loving-kindness for yourself and all those around you, release your awareness right to the ground, And settle your body in a state of relaxation, stillness, and vigilance. And in order to settle the inner voice of the mind in its natural state of effortless silence, settle your respiration in its natural rhythm, breathing as effortlessly, as unimpededly, as if you were deep asleep, allowing the body to breathe without any intervention on your part.
only with a spirit of renunciation or a spirit of definite emergence can we truly release all of our attachment and grasping to mundane concerns, including those of the future and the past. So arouse this now. As you set your sights single-pointedly on the liberation, the awakening of the mind, release everything else, all mundane concerns. And in that release, just as you release tension in the body, you release tension in the mind, all stemming from grasping. In that release, your awareness naturally settles, effortlessly settles, in stillness. And awareness by nature is clear. It's not something added to it. So in this way, rest your mind, settle your mind in its natural state, relaxed, still, and clear. And now for the main practice, we shall turn to mindfulness of breathing as taught by the Arya Asanga in his Shravakabhumi, in which the object of mindfulness is the fluctuations within the field of the body, these energetic fluctuations corresponding to the respiration, the immediate experience of your body breathing in and breathing out. So attend to the space of the body and the sensations corresponding to or correlated with the respiration throughout the entire body. 
This is the object of mindfulness. So ground your awareness. Anchor your awareness. In this field of sensation, corresponding to the in and out breath, essential to this practice, that you're allowing the breathing to flow unimpededly, effortlessly, egolessly. It's not so easy to release control over something that we're closely attend to and that we can control. But this is exactly what is called for here. Closely apply your mindfulness to the sensations of the respiration throughout the body, but release all control, all influence. And a key to learning this skill is the outbreath of releasing in every way with every outbreath. Breath more and more deeply relax and release in the body, including the muscles of the face. Soften, loosen. With every out-breath, release the breath fully, all the way through to the end, holding nothing in reserve, fearlessly releasing the breath all the way.
With every out-breath, release all the activities of the mind, thoughts, memories, imagination, desires. Give it all away. And like water sinking into the sand, let your awareness become immersed in this non-conceptual field of tactile sensations, right down to the ground. Immerse your awareness in a non-conceptual, non-discursive space. Whatever thoughts come up, release them instantly, especially on the out-breath. In his explanation of this practice, the Sangha follows very closely the core instructions of the Buddha. When the in-breath is long, note that it is long. When the out-breath is long, note that it is long. And when the in-breath is short, note that it is short. When the out-breath is short, note that it is short.
now let's introduce into this method a technique taught by Padmasambhava, very common in the Dzogchen tradition, for shamatha, and that is introduce the element of an oscillation. As the breath flows in, each time, let this be an occasion for really focusing your attention, unifying your awareness, single-pointedly, non-conceptually. Ground your awareness. And as the breath flows out, then deeply relax, releasing the body, releasing the breath, releasing thoughts. And let your awareness come to rest in this tactile field, right down to the ground. Arousing with each inhalation and relaxing deeply with each exhalation. And to the best of your ability, sustaining an ongoing flow of mindfulness of these sensations of the breath throughout the body. Let's continue practicing now in silence.
Manaso. There are a number of theories and practices that were taught in the sutras and also in the great commentaries by the great pundits and siddhas of India, which um, became de-emphasized or kind of marginalized in the Tibetan tradition uh, because it seemed it just wasn't quite appropriate for them. They highlighted, of course, as they should, the theories and practices they found most helpful, most essential, and they certainly covered it. It was a great success, frankly, of 1,012 or 1,200 years. Um, but some practice, like the Shradaka Bhumi, this magnificent masterpiece by, Shandid, by uh, Asanga, includes teachings that I've not found in any Tibetan literature. But I've found that over the years, I think decades by now, His Holiness Dalai Lama, in teaching globally, keeps on coming back to India. Back to India. When he's teaching Tibetans, he'll often teach Tibetan literature. But when he's teaching globally, he'll often go back to Shantideva, to Nagarjuna, to Kamalashila. And Asanga was, again, one of those greats. And I found that his approach, quite detailed explanation to mindfulness of breathing, uh, is very powerful, very meaningful, very closely in accordance with the Buddha's own teachings on mindfulness of breathing. Uh, and this is his practice. Just your object of meditation is not focusing here at the nostrils or rise and fall of the abdomen. It's not visualizing anything. When the Tibetans get their hands on mindfulness of breathing, they just start visualizing, you know, because they just love to visualize. Uh, and of course, it's a perfectly fine method. But I find myself very drawn to this method of, of a sangha. And if you ask how it turns out, we're just starting, right? Well, what, what, happened, what would happen if you took this as your main practice for shamatha? Augmenting it, of course, with other practices, the four measurables and so forth. But if this became your, your main practice to actually achieve shamatha, let's imagine we get that property up there and you go into an open-ended retreat, shamatha or bust, right? And just continue practicing. Like Gautama, sitting under the Bodhi tree and say, I'm, I'm not moving until I've achieved awakening. Well, a little mini-awakening, you know, a little mini-awakening of shamatha. Uh, and this is your method. Well, we can tell you. We can tell you, that is we, the lineage, and tell you what happens is you sit down, whether you're in the supine position, and I'll address issues of posture a little bit later on, citing my sources. Uh, but whether you're in the supine position or sitting, the two primary uh, methods you may adopt, you may adopt both of them alternatingly, for practicing shamatha, as this whole system calms down, uh, then of course your body needs less air which means over time, but letting the body do this. Don't try to go into manual override. Don't try to outsmart your body, thinking, I know it's supposed to happen, I'll just make that happen. <coughs> Don't do that. Let the body sort itself out by settling the respiration in its natural rhythm. And over time, whether it's days, weeks, or months, but over time, you'll find not only sporadically, but continually, the breathing becomes shallow because your body just doesn't need as much air. So when breathing in short, you know that it's short. Breathing out short, you know that that is short. You'll settle into a, into a steady frequency of breath. My strong hypothesis is it's going to turn out to be about 15 cycles per minute, about four seconds per, for complete respiration, uh, but very, very relaxed and very shallow, very calm. And then over time, the amount of air you're taking in that the body needs decreases. And so the amplitude, if we look at this as a sine wave, well, the cycle is 15 cycles per minute, but then the amplitude, how much air are you taking in, is like a damped sine wave. 
and that is it just gets shallower and shallower and shallower. Well, those of you who have studied Buddhism, studied Tsongkhapa, for example, you'll know perfectly well that you cannot achieve shamatha. You cannot cross the threshold over into the form realm if you've dropped the anchor of your awareness in some object in the desire realm. Because that will keep you in the desire realm and you won't cross over into the form realm, which means you won't achieve shamatha. Um, what happens here, because a sangha makes no reference to a acquired sign, counterpart sign, which are very common classic in the Theravada tradition. He simply says, do this practice. What does occur is the sensations get subtler and subtler and subtler until you actually achieve shamatha. Well, when you're achieving shamatha, your senses are withdrawn from all, all five of the sensory fields. There's complete agreement here. Vasubandhu, Asanga, Tsongkhapa, Padmasambhava. It's a consensus. If you disagree, you're wrong. There we go. Your senses withdraw from all of the five sensory fields entirely. You have no experience of your body, no tactile sensations. So then, what about your meditative object? If you're unaware of your body, then how do you possibly attend to the sensations of the breath? And there's a very interesting catch here. I'll elaborate just a little bit, because we're going to try to keep these morning sessions short. Um, it turns out that when you're breathing, when you're, when you're dreaming, when you're dreaming, you're generally just unaware of your body lying in bed entirely, because your awareness is totally absorbed into the mental domain. So if you're aware of any body, it's only the body in the dream, and that's not a physical body at all, of course. It's a figment of your imagination. It turns out that the cycle of your respiration in a dream, if you hold your breath in a dream, your body lying in bed holds its breath. If your breathing is fast in the dream, the body lying in bed has fast respiration. They correspond, exactly. So you can send Morse code. You can go, you know, long breath, short, short, long, long, short, from the, inside, the breathe, inside the dream and send messages to somebody who's observing your body. You can send it in Morse code. Spooky. <laughs> but this means by attending to the respiration of your body in the breath, which is not physical, then you, can be, you are in fact attending to the same rhythm of your body lying in bed, which is physical. right? Now, is that still desire realm? Of course it is. Your dream is in the desire realm. But it's purely mental, as in a, men a mental image, like focusing on Buddha Shakyamuni. Well, the focusing on a mental image of Buddha Shakyamuni, that's a perfectly legitimate object. There's just no question. Tsongkhapa teaches it. They all teach it in the Mahayana tradition. So what happens when you achieve shamatha? According to a sangha, you achieve shamatha, let's imagine, on a Buddha image. You've gone through all the nine stages, total st stability, and you achieve shamatha, and then you release that object. You release the object. And you rest, as the Sangha says, in a space devoid of appearances. And now you've achieved shamatha. You follow these sensations subtler and subtler and subtler. But what's very interesting here, it turns out, scientists have discovered that this correlation between breathing in the dream and breathing of the body lying in bed. Contemplatives, this is preliminary, but I think it's true. Contemplatives, contemplatives that I know, have made another discovery, which is more subtle. It's, it's, I think, actually more interesting still. And that is when you're simply resting in the substrate consciousness. Okay, So a lot of you, I think you know the term by now, or the bhavanga in the, in the Theravada tradition. But when you're simply resting in this relative ground state of awareness, and you have no experience of your body at all, no tactile sensations, no sensations from, from any of the five sense fields, even while resting there in this alaya, this space devoid of appearances, you're still aware of the rhythm of the breath. How about that? 
You're aware of the rhythm of the breath, even without being aware of the tactile sensations in the body. So this would indicate that, in fact, you could be focusing on the rhythm of the breath right through the first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, until there is no more rhythm of the breath because the breathing has stopped entirely. So this is a complete practice. You don't need to add some other technique. This is the technique. It just gets subtler and subtler and subtler until you achieve shamatha. Now, the significance of this, and this is the point I'll end on, we're attending to the body. And how significant is that? You know, in the teachings on renunciation, we learn about how, you know, we just kind of focus on how disgusting the body is. It's decomposing, it's smelly, it's stinky. Your body, the beautiful woman's body, the handsome man's body, all equally stinky, impure. So get over it, you know, all the attachment in that business. But of course, there's a lot more to the body than the fact that it's, you know, made of flesh and it's kind of stinky. There's more to it. We find that in Vajrayana. But we also find this in the Pali Canon. And I'll read this, and we'll take a break. This is from the Buddha in the Samyutta Nikaya. And by the way, everything I read, I'm going to be adding notes throughout the entire retreat. I've been doing this for years. And at the end of the day, what I'm going to do this time is the end of the day, when I've, I've, whatever I wanted to add, I'm going to send this to, shall I send Okay, to Claudio. Claudio will then send this to Sange. And as the podcasts come up, then for each day's podcast, you'll also get the notes for that day. Okay? So then you'll have it verbatim. You don't have to look for it. So here's the quote. It's very short. Some of you may know it's coming. The Buddha stated, It is in this fathom-long body. A fathom is your two arms outstretched. More or less, that's considered to be your height. Unless you have very short or very long arms. <laughs> and so this, in other words, fathom-long, well, the height of your body. It is in this fathom-long body with its perceptions and its mind, so the body but integrated with mind, the mind-body system, with its perceptions and its mind, that I describe the world, the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, and the way leading to the cessation of the world. You just noted the Four Noble Truths there, yeah? Of the world. In other words, this may be very significant to really fathom the nature of this fathom-long body with its perceptions in mind, this body that is unlike a cell phone or a glass of water, permeated by consciousness. Permeated by consciousness. And not just consciousness, but perceptions in the mind, the activities of the mind, the emotions, thought that it's permeated by this, influenced by this. And so fathom this. Well, what happens at the end of the world, of, of, a, of a world system, a loka or a jikten, what happens? It's destroyed, of course, and it dissolves into the form realm. And this, this world here, in the Buddhist cosmogony, this world that we call the universe, the world that we're familiar with, this, in the desire realm, emerges from the form realm. Right? Emerges from the form realm, lasts for some billions of years, and then dissolves back into the form realm. So what happens to your body from your perspective, not from anybody else's perspective, from your perspective when you achieve shamatha? From your perspective, the body disappears. Disappears. All the appearances of the body slip back into the substrate. And the substrate is right on the cusp, right on the threshold of the form realm. So in a way, you're seeing the end of the world, (laughs) as you know it. Uh, Your body dissolving into the ground from which it arose. All the appearances of the body arose from the substrate, in the formation of the fetus and the mother's womb. And at the end of the day, when you die, all the appearances from your perspective, of your body, 
all dissolve back into the substrate, from form realm to desire realm, back to form realm. Microcosm, macrocosm. Interesting, yeah? Okay. So what I would encourage you today, especially, but then throughout the, the whole retreat, is use this method a lot. Use this method a lot, because this is certainly one of the most effective methods. I won't say it's the most, because I don't know that. But one of the most effective methods for establishing a new baseline, a baseline of your default mode, when you're not doing anything particular, you're not meditating, you're not answering indispensable email and so forth, what's your baseline? What's your default mode of your mind? When scientists study people in MRI or so forth, they say, you now go into your, your, your default mode. They assume you're just going chattering away. But that's your, they assume that. That's probably true for their minds. They will assume that's true for other people's minds, and they're generally right. The people would just relax, then they just chatter. Imagine you did that with your mouth. Let's all relax. And then we just all start talking <laughs> by ourselves, soliloquies, you know, and just mumbling and babbling and going on and on and disjointed. And imagine 55 people say, let's all just rest now. And people, 55 mouths turn on and just start rambling and rambling. And we had outsiders come in they would think this is definitely a mental institute of a very special kind. <laughs> but people are mentally debilitated. And that's because we're doing publicly what we're normally doing privately. But the fact that we're doing it privately and not publicly doesn't make it any saner. Right? So establishing a baseline of sanity. When there's nothing to say, don't say anything. Nothing you need to think about, don't think about anything. Be present with what reality is dishing up, and that's your default mode. This practice with a release, every out-breath. And kind of the image, we all know it. If you pour a bucket of water into sand, what happens to the water? It disappears quickly. Let all the activities of the mind seep down into the sands of the body. Not releasing into space. We'll get to that later. Very powerful. But we need to get grounded. In our 21st century, we need to get grounded, first of all. We need relaxation more than probably any civilization in history. We need to learn how to loosen up, to unwind, to relax. You know, people in the Amazon didn't need to learn that. In Tibetan nomadic country, didn't need to learn that. Cult, Tibetan traditional cultures generally, they have mental afflictions like everybody else. But we are the up most uptight civilization in history. I'm quite sure. Italy, maybe a little bit less than more, but you know, <laughs> still, you're part of modernity. It's tough luck. And so, this is a way to do our remedial work. I just ground ourselves, ground ourselves, and ground it in the body. Okay? So as much as you can, and from starting today, I really strongly encourage you, really start exploring the supine position, because in that position, you can relax totally in the body. Totally relax. Just don't lose clarity. Okay? And if you're still having jet lag, then go ahead and lose, lose clarity. <laughs> yeah. And have a night, you know, get naps, sleep it out, get rested, get on this time zone, and then we'll be all cruising together. Enjoy your day. I'll see you at 4.30 this afternoon. <laughs>